The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, it's been a while since we've been back in in Mark. We've been in Mark for a long time. We're actually going to finish it by Easter, okay? We're going to finish this book, and we took a break through uh, Advent season, and we're looking at the light of the world. Now we're returning to Mark chapter 14. encourage you to follow along along there. I wonder how many of you saw the movie The Perfect Storm. It was many years ago that that movie came out. And I remember when I saw it and, and, and I read the book this past week because I always wondered, like, how do you make a decision like that? To, let's just take on a, a perfect storm and this boat, this Andrea Gale sword fishing boat, uh, takes on 70-foot waves and we don't really know what happened to the Andrea Gale. It just disappeared. And in the movie, it's just going, going, going up this wave and then it just falls backwards and I just didn't sleep well that night and oh man I just can't imagine that just be such an awful way to go well the key paragraph in the whole book of the perfect storm is on page 98 and we're told that the captain of the ship Billy he can either waste several days trying to get out of the way of this storm or he can stay on course for home he's already late for home This boat's already been out a month, and it's already gotten uh, some extra fuel from another boat out in the waters, and the reason it was out longer is because they weren't catching the fish that they needed to catch, and it was late in the season to be catching the fish, but they had finally struck, uh, you know, struck gold, so to speak, and they had 40,000 pounds of fish uh, down below, and so the problem is now is that they don't have enough ice, and the ice is starting to melt. So he's got to make a decision. Do I dare risk 40,000 pounds of fish and stay out here and risk that all my, my fish goes bad because the ice melts and these men are you know, living off the livelihood of the fish? Or Are we going to go north and try to get out of the way of the storm, or do we just batten down the hatches and hang on and just say, screw it? We're heading home. Well, they headed home, all right, and they never made it. Well, we're all living for something, and sometimes there are events in our life like this that it get, really gets revealed, what are we really living for? And what you see in this text that I'm going to read is that everybody's living for something, and everybody has a, a certain worth that they've placed upon Jesus, and you're going to see hatred, and you're going to see love, and we'll contrast the two, as the, I'm sure Mark is intending us to see the contrast. Let's give attention to God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came 
with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the, the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. We pray again for us. Father, now as we look, Lord, at your word, help us, Lord, to see um, where we fall short, where Christ has atoned for our sins. Pray that, Lord, our own hearts will be revealed and pray that we would be lovers of you and not lovers of pleasure and of money. And pray that we'd live for the world to come and for your glory. I ask in your name. Amen. Well, we've been, if you remember going through Mark, we've been making this term that we've used a lot called the Mark and Sandwich. And the Mark and Sandwich is the idea is that in Mark and his in his writing will often have a story in the middle between two other uh, points of the story, and there's like an insertion in the middle, and that's verses 3 to 9. This is one of the clearest sandwiches in Mark, because verse 1 and 2, you have the hatred and the tension. You have the hatred of how in the world are the chief priests and the scribes going to get rid of Jesus when they have this problem, and the problem is the crowd likes Jesus, and so the crowd is working as a bridle to keep them from fulfilling their desires of, of murder, and they're worried about the crowd, but they have this great hatred. And then verse 10, 11, we see the greed and the gladness as the tension is relieved. We have a, a solution to the problem, how we can actually kill him and avoid the crowd. Judas has volunteered to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We're told in, in Matthew's account that it's a little bit of 30 uh, pieces of silver. And so we have the, the greed and the gladness as the tension is fulfilled, and we have the tension in verse 1 and 2. But in the middle, you have a sandwich. You have something inserted that Mark is trying to point our attention to. And what Mark is doing is, and, and all the gospel writers do this, they slow everything down in the last week of Jesus' life. It's almost like you're watching a movie and all of a sudden things go, get, go into slow motion. And it's so slow and so succinct that you have to catch that this is a significant period of, of here Jesus lives 33 years and yet the gospel writers will take the last week of his life and spent chapters on this. And so from here to the end of, of Mark's gospel is what we call the passion 
of Christ. And what we mean by Passion Week, and it's not what we mean by our term today when we, we're talking about passion, we, you know, we think of romance, and that's not the idea of all. The idea is a, more the Greek understanding of this word means it's a week of suffering, and the passion is the suffering of Jesus. And every story is going to point you with big, big things of how Jesus is being abandoned. Everybody is leaving him. And horrible things are going to happen to him. And not only are they going to abandon him, but they're going to crucify him. They're going to torture him and beat him. And, and there's going to be a betrayal. There's going to be a denial. I mean, it's just going to be one horrible thing after another. We're going to take that in between now and Easter to consider how much Jesus loves us. And so, really, from Mark's gospel in chapter 8, everything's kind of leading up to the question. And the question is, when Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? That's chapter 8, verse 29. And from then on in the book, it's to the cross, to the cross. And from then on, as soon as Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus is now telling them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he's been telling them that a bunch. Okay, and so here we have this, this Markin sandwich for us to consider, and what you're going to see is both that the, on the one hand, how much the chief priests and the scribes and Judas want to get rid of Jesus, and you see that the willingness to pay for their hatred, and yet you have this woman who's showing you the greatness of her love for Jesus. And really, this is going to be the last kindness shown to Jesus before that leads up to the cross, okay? Now, when you, I don't know if some of you guys like watching murder mysteries like Dateline or whatever the, the show is, um, I kind of get into those things a little bit. And the detectives are always looking for clues as to figure out what led to this, this murder, and typically, if there's a spouse involved, I mean, if I had a dollar for every one of these that I watched, and you start to follow the money, and then you start to, then you start to realize the other spouse is we got to follow the money, and we're looking for one particular thing in particular, and it always comes down to the life insurance plan, right? And then you start to realize this is a first-degree murder because it's planned, it's premeditated, and that's what you have here. You have a planned, premeditated murder, follow the money, and it goes back to Judas. And yet, you're going to see such a contrast uh, in this text. And what we see is that from the days of, of Jesus into the, when you watch Dateline, there really isn't a whole lot of difference. You're seeing hatred in the first degree here. And so... Mark is, is trying to show us this is going to be the last kindness shown to Jesus before he goes to the cross. And here we see that Jesus is at Simon the leper's house, and most scholars think that Simon was healed by Jesus. He may have been the same leper that was at the beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark that says, you know, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That may have been Simon. Or certainly, 
it's pretty much a pretty good guess that he had to have been healed, otherwise he wouldn't have been in his home. He would have been in a leper colony. And some think, uh, scholars think, that Simon the leper is actually the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Because John 12 gives us some interesting details. And if you have your Bible, and you can just kind of jump over to John 12, you have three different accounts of this story, but John gives us a lot more details as far as names of players of who, who, who's involved here. And this is what John 12 tells us, that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. If you remember the chapter before, Lazarus has been raised from the dead in John 11. And now in John 12, he says, okay, he's come to Lazarus where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. This was a a dinner to honor Lazarus. And Martha served, of course, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we get who the person is. Now, Mark doesn't name her which is very interesting where John does. I think John is trying to to show us a contrast between the inside crowd and the outside crowd. And he's, I think he's trying to show you that, you know, the, the, the insiders, you know, those who, who seem to be in the know and, and these prominent people like the chief priests and the scribes and Judas, and yet they, they completely miss who Jesus is and what he's worth, but she doesn't. But for some reason, he doesn't name her. But anyway, so we're told in in John's account that Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And so here we have it. We have all the characters and we're even told who begins, you know, Matthew's account says that they all scolded the woman. They all scolded Mary. But John's account makes it clear that it was actually Judas that that blows the horn and calls it out. And so here Mary has taken a, uh, this expensive uh, perfume that apparently came from India, a pound, of, a pound of pure nard, and it's worth 300 denarii. And you figure if you worked uh, six days a week in that culture and you get paid a denarius a day, 300 denarius would be a year's wage. So imagine taking a whole year's worth of wages. Here's 75K, boom, broken and dumped over Jesus' head. And for her, Jesus is worth it. He is worthy. But from the disciples, you've heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, no sooner does she show this kind of affection for Jesus, and she sees Jesus as worthy of the most lavish gifts and money. Jesus is not to be undervalued. And so she pours out her love to Jesus. Really, it probably is a thank you that my brother's alive. But somehow she may have a sense, as Jesus says, that she's anointing his body beforehand for burial. 
But it introduces us to this next tension in the text, that here Mary shows this great love, and it's met with scorn, with derision. Literally, the word is snorting and scolding. And here they, they, they say to her, why this waste? And so, and we know that, that from John's account, that this is all starts with Judas, who's, who's basically trying to pretend that he really cares about the poor, right? This is how one commentator put it. Lenski says that Judas corks the vial of his own poison and the vile odor begins to spread. So you have this word picture of not only do you have this beautiful fragrance of perfume, but, but Judas is now going to cork his own vial of poison. And Lenski says, in the basest of moves, a man often has supporters and abettors, especially if he's able to hide his evil intent behind a plausible idea. Now, we have a phrase for this that's kind of new in our culture. But when somebody tries to pretend that they really do care about this big concern that's big in our culture, and they post it on social media to make it look like they really care, that they're all, you know, we're all green, we're all, you know, we're all into, into the environment. What do we call that? Virtue signaling. This is a classic virtue signaling text. And the problem is in, the, in this passage is that it's not the chief priest and the leaders that are virtue signaling. It's the people that are closest to Jesus. It's the insiders. It's the church. It's the very disciples that instead of being together in on this and let's all worship Jesus and let's show him what he's worth, there's only one person who gets it. And the one person who gets it, she gets it, all right? She gets it from the attack of these men. And you put yourself in this situation. If we were to look at this through our 21st century eyes, what would we begin to say? We would say this is a toxic environment. This is verbal abuse. This is mansplaining. I mean, we would have all these terms for a woman who's in this position of, of no power in front of all these influential people with all the power, and they're making her feel like we got to stick her nose in the dew and make her feel terrible for this incredible thing that she's done. Thankfully, somebody comes to her defense. Jesus comes to her defense. And so they're making life miserable for Mary and what she's done. And what's happened is the disciples, they don't think, so you see, when the disciples demean Mary, who are they really demeaning? They don't think that Jesus is worth that much. He doesn't need to be loved like that. What are you doing? You should, you should be giving that to the poor. But Jesus actually, in showing his incredible worth, imagine anybody else on the planet saying, um, listen, the poor you'll always have with you, and you can always give to them whatever you want, but you won't always have me, and this is a good thing to spend it on me. I mean, can you imagine if anybody else says that, what would you say? You would cry foul, like that's unbelievably arrogant, unless it's Jesus. And Jesus is saying that she's done what is worthy. She's done a beautiful thing. This is a good thing that she has done. And so Mary uh, is experiencing the scorn of 
the insiders. And I think for us, just a couple quick lessons from this. One is that um, we don't want to be people that are, when people choose to love in certain ways that may not be the way that you would show your love or affection to Jesus, does that mean that you should scorn and stop them for the way that they worship or show their, their love for God? And that, you know, because what you're seeing here is really kind of a legalistic model. Like, no, he's not worth that. And yet, actually, Jesus commends what she has done. And what we see is that Jesus, we can never, we can never um, overvalue Jesus, right? That's the one thing we learn from this text, is that it's easy to undervalue him. Matter of fact, that's probably how most of us live our lives, is we say, what's the least the least I can do to serve the church. What's the least I can do and not feel guilty about it, but I just want to do the least amount as possible. What's the least I can do? You know, and that's really kind of how we operate. You know, so my conscience doesn't bother me, but what's the least I can do? And for Mary, that's not good enough. She wants to love him in a much greater way than that. And so um, what we're seeing, if we look, though, closer at this story, is... What Mark is trying to show us is, first of all, he, he, he draws this attention in the Gospel of Mark. You have women that are being held up as examples of faith in a pretty amazing way in, in, the, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark. James Edwards, in his pillar commentary, he says this. He says, on two occasions, women appear in the heart of the sandwich technique of the ideal of faith and devotion. The woman with the hemorrhage in Mark chapter 5, she's going to be wedged in the middle of this story, and she is a model of faith for Jairus, who's the synagogue president, and yet this woman who comes and touches the hem of his garment, she's really the one being held up as one of faith. And then we have the Syrophoenician woman, and she's the model of faith for all outsiders. We have a woman in the temple because she's praised because everybody else you know, gave a little bit out of their excess, but she gave her whole life is literally the idea. She gave out of her, her essence, out of her substance. And above all, the anointing at Bethany is so exemplary that the proclamation of the gospel in the world is a commemoration of her act. And so we see Mark is drawing attention to people that, that in that culture wouldn't have been given the attention that was due to them. And it would be easy for us to focus all of our attention on Mary in the, t- in the text and the cost of her sacrifice. But there should be enough clues in the text that as we look deeper, we can say, wow, there's actually something greater than the, than the pure nard that's being poured out in this text. There's a sweet-smelling aroma of a sacrifice that's more valuable than a year's wages in this text. There's a sacrifice so big in this text that it should help us to see that any love or any gift or any reciprocation of love is always nothing in comparison. You see, because all of this is reminding us of the bigger story of what Christ has done. He is the one who is leaving everything behind and comes from heaven to earth and lays his life down, moves us out of the way so that he can stand in the gap and take our sins for us on the cross. Let's be reminded of this great story. We're told in Ephesians 5 that we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God, his very life, 
the life of the only Son of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that was us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5, 6 to 10. Or as Jesus says in John 15, as he's with the disciples at the Last Supper, he said, greater love than no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. We're told in 1 John 4 that in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who would turn away God's wrath and anger towards us by taking it upon himself. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also now with him graciously give us all things? Paul describes it like this. He says, and this is the Christmas verse that we often share, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I wonder if some of you have heard the Christmas song, Thou Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor. It's John Dennis's favorite hymn. Aaron John, this is a shout out to you who's recommended this to me. And there's a, a, a nice version by the Gettys of this song, but here's the lyrics. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor, Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became pure, poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became as man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. You see, we're to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, we undervalue Jesus as our problem. We miscalculate what is he really worth. We're all measuring up in our lives, what is Jesus worth? What is he worth to you? And we tend to underpraise, underprize, undervalue, and we tend to give Jesus the minimal. Tom Rainer, who's this church uh, guru guy that writes about uh, statistics, um, written a lot of books and showing the trends in the church. Well, there was this recent study of 10 questions of how well you understand the church in America today. And I didn't do very well in answering the 10 questions. But one of the questions was, what's the number one reason that church attendance is in decline in evangelical churches? And 
The answer is not that people are leaving the church altogether. The answer is that church members are attending church less. So that now three, if somebody comes three out of eight Sundays, they are considered, they consider themselves all in. I'm there, man. I am a regular attender. I am there three out of eight Sundays. And that's the reason that he's saying that the church is actually declining in attendance. You see, we undervalue Jesus. I have a pastor friend who, who lost a whole family in the church because the family's becoming ninja warriors. And the kids have gotten into being ninja warriors, and they go to these tournaments almost every weekend. They're in a ninja warrior tournament. Some of you guys are looking at me like, what, what is that? Uh, Google it. Oh, you, you'll see. I mean, they, these people are incredible athletes. Uh, another friend of mine was telling me about, he's in this church, but this family no, doesn't come anymore because they've gotten into syncopated ice skating, and they travel all over the country and every weekend so that they can do the syncopated ice skating competition for competing in syncopation. And it, it sounds silly, but the reality is there's lots of things that we can just get sucked into. And are you, what are you willing to show your worth to Jesus, to value how great he is in light of what he's done for you, that he left everything? He left heaven, shed his blood, gave himself for you, how do we, in turn, show devotion like Mary did? What, what is too much? Is anything too much? So are you willing to give up your sin? Are you willing to walk in the light? Are you willing to, to give of your substance, of your time to the church, of your, your tithe to the church? Are you willing to commit to a life group, or is that, is that too much? Or is serving in the nursery, well, that, that, that's a step too far. Going on a mission trip committing weekly to, to serve the body? Are we willing to, because to, we're all measuring what Jesus is worth all the time. And this past week was the anniversary of the five missionaries who died in 1956. It's been a long time now since these incredible five guys, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian, these guys all left uh, their comfort zones, they went down to Ecuador, and they're all married, and they called it Project Alka, which was to reach the Alka Indians with the gospel. And they were going to fly in with this uh, little Piper Cub that uh, Nate Saint flew, and they began to make inroads with this tribe. And the story caught a lot of coverage, and it still does today. I mean, they've made movies and different things, but it got... And you can actually read, there's some pretty amazing articles that Life Magazine and Time Magazine covered the story, and they actually give a, a pretty good fair shake to how they viewed Christians in 1956. And, but on January 8, 1956, all five of them were speared to death by the Alka Indians. And... They're missing, and so they go looking for them, and they find their bodies, the four of the bodies. They never found Ed McCulley's body. Four of the bodies they found, you know, murdered on the beach. And here you have five wives that become widows, and nine children lose their father like that. And so what was written was 
a natural human response was, why this waste? And there were articles even written about, why this waste? These are five incredibly talented, gifted men that gave up their life. Was it a waste? Why this waste? Because that's the question being asked in this text. Why this, why this waste? And what was Jim Elliott's classic two quotes that he gave? He who's no fool, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He knew it was worth it. He knew he might lay his life down. His other great quote is, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. And then in 1959, Time Magazine wrote an article entitled, What Makes a Missionary? And it was a reflection on Nate Saint's life. And the person writing this article for Time Magazine had read Nate Saint's book, Jungle Pilot. And he came to this quote at the end of the article of what makes a missionary. And he said this, here's the answer. As the writer is writing for Time Magazine, says, this is why Nate Saint went. And Nate Saint wrote, we realize that it is not the call of needy thousands. Rather, it is the simple intimation of the prophetic word that there should be some from every tribe in his presence in the last day. And in our hearts, we feel that it is pleasing to him that we should interest ourselves in making an opening into the Alka prison for Christ. It's knowing that there should be worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation and people. And so he went. And we sing all of these hymns and a lot of our modern hymns are kind of missing this, I would say. And so, but listen to, listen to these songs that we sing. And we're going to sing one in closing today. But just be reminded of things that we sing. All the vain things, things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty, cling to gilded toys of dust, boast of wealth and fame and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all besides. So enchained my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, thou and all always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Well, is it really? All of us are living for something. Is what you're living for worthy of your deepest affections, worthy of your worship, worthy of your loyalty, worthy of Jesus? Is it worth dying for? Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he says to us, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, how dare we say, why this waste to someone who gives their all to you? And may we not be a people who shrink back, but may we be a people who give all and are willing to put forth great sacrifice that others would look to us and say, why are they doing that? Who are these people? Lord, we thank you for people like Paul. Said he was to be pitied above all men if the resurrection wasn't true the way he lived his life. Forgive us, Lord, for loving this world and living for this time, this age, these principles. Help us, Lord, to be governed by your principle and your reign and your rule and your yoke. And may we love you with an abandonment. We ask in your name, amen.